Hey everyone, we're going to be starting live in five minutes. I'm just waiting for Thomas to get on, so everyone just be patient. We'll be live in five minutes. Hello, Thomas. Can you hear me? This is a. Hold on. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Okay, great. Uh, cool. We'll wait about uh, two, three more minutes to let some more people get on, and then we'll go ahead and uh, get started. Okay, let's do this. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and get started here. I just want to first off thank everyone for uh, listening here live on the Warren Letter podcast. And those of you who are listening to this recorded, just uh, want to thank you so much. The, um, the uh, you know, support I've been getting on Twitter and on this podcast has, has truly been amazing. Um, I'm up to 19,000 followers on Twitter and a lot of that has come from uh, publications from the podcast and the newsletter and, and things like that. And so I'm just very blessed and very excited uh, uh, for all of your support. Um, today's show is one that, you know, I, I've ho- I hope that we wouldn't have to do because of the, uh, you know, I've been predicting this situation with Ukraine and Russia for a long time. And I spoke with Thomas about two months ago, um, and he was an expat who was living in Ukraine. And he um, basically told me, you know, uh, he, you know that there, he was ready for an invasion, but hoped that it wouldn't happen. And I told him, you know, if, if it does happen, I pray for him and his family that he's able to get out safely. And um, and, you know, the, the invasion did happen. And, and, you know, he has an amazing story to share. He was able to get out safely, at least uh, with his family. I know they're in the United Kingdom now. Um, you know, I'm very excited to have him on and always great to hear a perspective from on the ground. 
but it's, you know, one that I hoped, uh, you know, a situation that him and his family would never have to be in. So with that introduction, Thomas, uh, how are you doing? Hello, not too bad. I just want to say hello to Hussein, Susan, Assad, Jacqueline, Karma and Mike, and of course, Hugh Russell. Uh, greetings from London. Oh, Thomas, so you so you are in London now, is that right? Is that what you said? Yeah, we're, um, we're in London. Uh, we managed to leave Ukraine. Uh, we arrived in England on the 8th of this month uh, after a kind of uh, a long journey, but we took a kind of easy journey back just to kind of collect our thoughts and drive across Europe before we came to England from, from Ukraine. Okay, so let's kind of start. Uh, let's start at, you know, the, the invasion started in, at the, in the nighttime, I believe it was February 23rd or 24th. Um, and now just for the viewers so they under, or listeners to understand, you were in uh, Lviv, right? And that's in the western part of Ukraine when this, when this yeah, started? We, yeah, we were, we were, actually it's quite, it's, I mean, it's not funny, but I'd say you know, we say in England it's funny. We were meant to be in Kiev uh, the day that the invasion started because uh, I was being messed around by the British government and they told me that we had to go to Kiev to go to a visa center in order to apply for my wife's English visa so we could leave the war because I was instructed by the uh, home office and the embassy to to do that uh, and to leave. So that I wasn't too happy about this and I did say to my embassy, I said, well, you know, what the hell? Uh, you've moved your embassy from Kiev to Lviv, yet you expect me and my wife to go to the first town or the first city that's going to be attacked if this does happen. Uh, it's not going to happen. So I cancelled my plans to go down there. I and mean, I wasn't going to walk into into that. And lo and behold, um, I got a message from my cousin about four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning in Ukraine. So he was probably three o'clock, uh, one o'clock in England. And... I didn't look at the messages and I looked at them and he said, you know, the, the, the war started. So, uh, you know, we were up at, you know, I woke my wife up and said, you know, it started, this war has started. And we were like, you know, just in disbelief. Uh, the first thing we thought was get fuel for the car. <laughs> so, um, you know, I got dressed and uh, drove down the road. And uh, as I got to the fuel station, I was like 10th in line. Uh, 20 minutes after, I was, there was like 60 cars behind me. You know, so the panic started, uh, but everyone was just in disbelief. You know, uh, it was unbelievable. Okay, so the first, so the first signs or the first warning that you had of the invasion was a, a text from your cousin. You know, from here in the, in the states, what we what we saw was, uh, you know, I've been following this very closely. I saw the signs building. Um, I saw there was a video, you know, on Twitter, someone posted a video of what looked like uh, the Ukrainian border guards in Crimea coming under fire. And then moments later, the um, security cameras went off. And that's that, that that's when, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. when I knew I said, it's that's is it. This is it. They're actually going to go in. You know, the worst case scenario is coming. Um, yeah. OK, so you so you said you so you filled up your car and your I mean, you know, you well, were no, we, we immediately. I mean, the first that you know, we we stayed for another two or three days. You know, um, I mean, we we weren't sure. You know, we just didn't. It's just not an everyday occurrence. Oh, war's happening. Okay, let's pack the car. 
I mean, the last thing we wanted to do was leave. You know, I think it's the last thing anyone wants to do. But as things started developing, um, you know, I have to think, you know, I can look after myself. I'm ex-military. I know know the deal. But I've got to think about the bigger picture, about my wife, uh, take her to safety, uh, things like this. So, you know, it was a kind of a couple of few days um, trying to work stuff out and see where things were going. You know, if you look at the map, West Ukraine, uh, Lviv is about 50, 60 kilometers from the Polish border, maybe a bit more. So, you know, we have the luxury of being in West Ukraine, so there's a direct exit out. For those in Kiev, of course, they've got to drive three or four hours, more, six even, and get, and then to Lviv, and then another hour. So, you know, geographically, they're not near any borders. We are. So that was the reason for filling the car up and just uh, kind of working out what we had to do. And now, Thomas, you, you know, you said you were in a, an ex-military man and you, um, you, uh, you know, were preparing for this. We spoke probably about two or three times and you stated, you know, that you had you had some gear ready and you were kind of had this in your mind as a, as a worst case uh, scenario. But something, in, you know, interesting what you said to me is that when this first happened, when the invasion started, you, your initial uh, emotional reaction was was disbelief. Um, and, and is that just because even though you prepared for this, you just never thought that Russia would actually do a full-scale invasion? Well, you know, as you know, as a military guy yourself, if you're in the military, you're always prepared. That's what you're there for. When you're ex-military and you're in a com- country and you've made your life there for six years and you've lived quite a peaceful life and, you're, you know, your job isn't primarily military, about, you know, the, the area and the strategic positioning of the Black Sea and Mariupol. Um, but, you know, yeah, it, was just, it was just like, wow, okay, here we go. And Thomas, your, your microphone cut off a little bit. I don't know if you've uh, had bad signal, but the last thing... I'm sorry. No, oh, no, that works now. Yeah, so, so you said, you know, as a military person, you're always uh, uh, prepared. So can you discuss kind of, you know, so watching the news from here in the States, it looked like after the signs of the initial invasion started, a lot of people were pretty calm, um, at least initially. And then it seemed like a, a mad rush to get out of uh, Kiev and, and, and into Western Ukraine and into Poland. Um, what, what was it like, you know, people you knew just on the ground and, and, and you know, those okay. first well, I know people in Kiev that, you know, have gone to the civil defense, they've left Kiev or their military or they were stuck there. Then they kind of, you know, started deteriorating. So a lot of people kind of amassed and moved towards uh, the west of Ukraine. The same with the east, uh, much harder. People that I knew in Odessa uh, left left through Hungary. Um, so, you know, there's different ways of leaving. But the people, you know, Mariupol, Kherson, Sumy, all these places, yeah, had a hard time of it, you know. Uh, they managed to get away. There's still people stuck, stuck down there. Um, you know, Mariupol's destroyed. I mean, it's been basically leveled, uh, which is awful. You know, um, the fighters there, uh, the Azov Battalion, and they, you know, hung, you know, hung in there, uh, and they're still hanging in there. 
um, but it's not looking good. You know, it's, it's a place that's that's very you know wanted. You've got the Sea of Azov, you've got Mariupol, then it goes into the Black Sea. So you know, it's a very strategic place and land bridge for Crimea. Um, you know, we saw slowly, slowly people starting to move, and you watch the news, and I'm sure you've seen it. These big long lines of cars and people walking towards the borders, max exodus of, of people walking towards the Polish borders. There's about five or six borders to Poland uh, after Lviv, and all of them were chock-a-block and, you know, full of people. Uh, very disorganized, um, a lot of entitled people thinking, yeah, I can just rock up in a G-Wagon or, a, you know, Benz, and I can get through the queue, and then fights were breaking up, people were being tugged out of cars, tires were being slashed, you know, because everyone was, you know, trying to be civil, and uh, some people that thought they were entitled, they thought they could jump the queue. Uh, <laughs> they were proved wrong, um, you know. So, you know, to get anarchy. Um, we were in a queue 36 hours, you know, and I think we were moving maybe four or five meters every two hours, every hour. And the last pit that we had was five kilometers, but it took us you know, 20 hours to do five kilometers. Um, people walking on foot. Hello. Oh yes, Thomas, I can hear you. Uh, you cut out just for a second. Yeah, well, let's, let's let's talk. Let's talk about your journey. So, the uh, the initial invasion kicked off. You uh, you said the first thing is you went and filled your car. And then what did you do for the next few hours? Did you and your wife discuss your plan? I mean, how did you how did you handle that? What was those first few days like? Well, the first few days was, you know, we were, kind of, you know, I was making a plan. I think, you know, I had to keep calm. Uh, there was a day that I did kind of lose it. There was one day and that was the day before we were losing. Uh, we were losing it. I don't know if you know that um, I'm an ex-volunteer out there. I was, went out there in 2015 as a volunteer. And we were getting um, kind of, um, uh, how can I say, trolled by separatists and stuff like this. And I got a pretty hor horrible video uh, from 2014 of um, uh, Russian military um, uh, looting, burning bodies of, of Ukrainian soldiers in a battle in 2014. And for a moment, I kind of lost it. You know, I just, uh, <laughs> I lost it. My wife was in the bank getting money and I was in the car and I was flipping out, you know, I kind of scared her. So then I had to kind of, you know, get my crap together. And then I thought, right, this is what we're going to do. Uh, this is the plan. Uh, we're going to gather what we can. We'll leave on the Saturday morning and uh, get out, you know. So that's what, uh, what it did. I had a, had a moment of madness where I wanted to kill every Russian. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I've, I've got a wife. It's not just me alone anymore like I was in 2015. So I'm going to think ahead uh, of these things. So uh you know got my got my crap together and uh, made a plan and okay so how did uh so what day did you leave and how did you actually get out did you just drive from lviv to the polish border yeah um we uh, filled up the car um packed the dog up wife up and uh, drove to the border driving to the border wasn't easy because all the main roads were uh, full of traffic so we managed to work out a kind of off the beaten track dirt road route, which got us there a bit quicker. If we'd taken the main asphalted route, we would have been probably three days in the car. But, you know, I off-roaded it, uh, scratched up the car a bit, you know, but 
I got us to where we needed to be, which was the closest I could physically get in the car to the border without having to sit on an asphalted road in a line, you know, with like 600 cars. So, you know, and I, I'll, I'll pat myself on the back. I did quite a good job doing the off-road bit. Uh, having experience from driving in Africa, not bad. So we got to where we needed to go. Then we just, you know, sat there. Um, uh, we arrived, and just a lot of tension, a lot of people trying to jump the queue, a lot of, you know, it was really, really quite tense. Funny thing is, um, just as it was uh, beginning to, um, nightfall was coming, I see a guy pull up in a Mercedes and they park up and they jump out. And I thought I recognized the face. It was Sean Penn. Uh, Sean Penn had been doing a documentary on Ukraine over the few days and he decided to leave. And we had a bit of a chat and he was quite tearful. I think he's half Ukrainian, half Russian. And he was very upset about the situation. He gave me a hug and off he walked. Um, so, you know, <laughs> you meet the strangest people in the strangest places, you know. So there you go. Oh, wow. That is okay. That is interesting. And he was at, he was at the Polish uh, border while you were waiting in line. Yeah. Uh, he, he walked, uh, he did the five kilometer walk, obviously. And we were in the car, you know, um, so off he trotted, uh, across the border. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So then, so then you're waiting in line and it, with, it's just you, your wife and your dog. Are you, are you in your car the whole time or did they make, did you yeah. have to park? Okay. We're in the car. Uh, I mean, we, I just had to keep, you know, we had to take it in turns. We did the three hours on, three hours off kind of uh, yacht watch uh, thing. And um, because, you know, you don't start your car and you don't move it quick enough, somebody's going to push in front of you. So we always had to be tailgating the next guy. When we saw the brake lights or the engines go on, you know, I was like awake and moving forward. Uh, some people fall, fell asleep and they lost their place by 10 cars, you know. So I wasn't really up for doing that. Um, I had a kind of mission, and that's what it was, to get us across the border. Oh, man, I can't even imagine how uh, stressful that is. And and now, when you were leaving Lviv, was there was there artillery or bombs going off, or was it relatively quiet at that point? No, Lviv didn't really, nothing happened there. I mean, sirens were going off in Lviv. You know, there were very, a lot of air raid sirens. Um, no, but there was a lot of activity. You know, I live, our apartment is right next to the military base. Uh, maybe further down the road is the Ukrainian Secret Services building. And then a bit further on is another base. So I kind of wanted to distance myself from that, those places. Um, you know, what I did as well, because I saw there was a, I went to get some cash and there's a cash machine right by the academy. There's a lot of activity. A lot of nervous people, uh, a lot of, you know, crying girlfriends and mums dropping people off. And they were mobilized. They were, you know, told what, where to go. I, in my kind of kindness, and I know that the Ukrainian military is underfunded, I went to my attic and I had some kit, which I have to re-get because I'm going back. But I gave what kit I could to, uh, to, to a lieutenant that I saw outside the base. Um, I tried to give it to the guys on the main gate and they wouldn't touch the packet. They were very cautious and they said they didn't want it. And then this other guy I saw and I recognized from the area, I gave him a bag of kit, um, some shirts and pants. Uh, I gave him a helmet and stuff like this. So, you know, and, uh, so, you know, he was really grateful for that. Who will I ever see this guy again? I don't know. You know, it'd be nice. My story if I did, but uh, I managed to, you know, pass on some of my kit. Uh, to people that needed it at the time.
Well, that's amazing. Um, and now, so what happened when you eventually reached the end of the queue uh, going into Poland? I mean, what happens when you get... Okay, well, you go to the Ukrainian side and uh, immediately as we pulled up, I look like a, I look like an of-age of uh, guy. Uh, they don't know if I'm Ukrainian or not. And a lot of people are trying to get out, these guys, because you have to be between... You cannot leave the country if you're between the age of 18 and 60. So there was, uh, you know, people looking at me. I mean, who are you? Where are you? Documents. Um, I think the word, I don't know what you'd call it in America, but in England they're called shirkers. Shirkers are the people that would try and run away from the army and not uphold their responsibility for their queen and their country. Um, so they were looking at me like that. I pulled out my English passport and it was okay, move forward. Uh, the Ukrainian side was pretty straightforward and the Polish side was straight through. Uh, luckily, we went through an EU corridor. I have a British passport, so we didn't have to go through the Ukrainian line, which would have taken longer because they were processing Ukrainians. So, you know, uh, thank you, Your Majesty the Queen, for the passport. That kind of, you know, sped the process up somewhat. Okay, wow. So there was people at, there was Ukrainians at the border with Ukrainians to Poland to make sure that no males between the age of 18 and 60 were trying to flee Ukraine. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, if I'd have had a Ukrainian car passport, I would have probably been dragged out of the car and sent back, for sure. Um, and you'd see military vehicles coming up and down, and they were probably, you know, looking for people trying to do that. So, yeah, they were pretty serious about that, you know. Um, the sad thing as well in this whole line of uh, this whole line of cars, you know, you see people uh, walking um, their wives and their children to the border crossing, and then you see them two hours later walking back alone, and that was that was hard to hard to watch. Oh, that that is that. I mean, that's just heartbreaking. I mean, from the humanitarian perspective, that's just just awful, right? Because they know yeah. they never know if they'll see each other again or what they're you know what they're walking into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that was a hard pill to swallow, I'd say. Wow. Okay. So, so then once you got to the Polish side of the border, where did you go from there? I mean, did you still have your vehicle with you? Yeah. Uh, basically, I have a British car, which I left there, and we thought it'd be better to take the Ukrainian car um, for, for various reasons. Uh, I'll, you know... But yeah, we were in in, uh, in our Ukrainian car, and we got across the border, and then we, you know, I got on hotels.com and booked us a nice hotel. I mean, we were in disbelief. Um, you know, still it was you know a real harrowing, long, uh, long process. You know, and also you know I can do that kind of stuff on my own, but you know you have to kind of keep calm for your wife, and not argue, and you know. There's a lot of emotions running through. I rebuilt a house. We got, you know, we left my mother-in-law there. Also, you have this great sense of guilt. You know, I have a great sense of guilt. Uh, somebody in England said it was survivor's guilt. Well, I haven't survived anything. So, but um, you know, you're leaving the country that you've made your home for seven years, and I can, and lots of people I know can't. So I do have that kind of sense, you know, feeling of guilt, great guilt. Wow, that's. Yeah, that's just, I can't even imagine. That's just terrible. Um, all around, I mean, so many different emotions. Have you spoken with uh, with anyone in the town where you lived or any of your neighbors? Are they doing okay? Yeah, I mean, I speak to a lot of people. I speak to people who are, you know, on the lines in, in Kiev. Um, but, you know, they're being very cautious. A lot of OPSEC, Operation Secret stuff going on. 
um, you know, if I speak to people or they send me pictures, if I post them, I blur them, I don't, you know, try and remove the metadata and stuff like this, just to be, just to be safe. Um, but yeah, I speak to people on a daily basis. Uh, I've been helping uh, my friends' wives uh, get homes because there's a scheme in England now that's allowing Ukrainian women and children to come to the UK and be hosted by uh, British families. So I've kind of been networking for them a little bit. I've been doing a lot of British press uh, with my wife, who I know, um, just to kind of you know keep people in tune. And also my wife has been doing her bit for Ukraine, uh, thanking the British government for the help uh, and the British people for the help that they've been giving Ukrainians. Um, you know, we're here, um, you know, we're safe. Um, um, luckily, I've got somewhere to stay for, you know, till mid, mid April, May. So, you know, for the moment, we're okay. Uh, my wife's working remotely. I'm doing the odd bit of work. And I'm doing a lot of fundraising as well, um, trying to raise money, um, because I'll be going back on the 12th. Uh, and um, I'll probably forward some stuff uh, somewhere in Poland. And when I go across, I can bring stuff in. Okay, so you said you're going back into Ukraine um, on the 12th. Uh, so I'm just just backtracking a little bit here. So once you got into Poland, I'm surprised you were able to get a uh, a hotel with that many people, you know, flooding into the area. Was it pretty easy? Well, we went. Uh, we kind of moved away from the border town and moved a bit inland. So we did about an hour and a half drive. Uh, I'm sure in the towns, the border towns, it would have been impossible. So, you know, for us, luckily, we went on foot, we went on the bus, so we could, you know, just fill the car up. We went and stayed in the hotel in the, in the middle of, you know, in the boonies somewhere in Poland. I can't even remember where it was. Nice place. And we stayed there for the night. And then uh, we went to Roslav uh, the day after, which was about a three-hour, four-hour drive. My uh, my wife's son is studying there. Um, he's he's been, We haven't seen him since September. And at Christmas, we had an inkling. Uh, that something was going to go on. And my wife quite wisely suggested that he stay in Roslava over Christmas. And then this happened. So, you know, she was right. She had a woman's intuition or whatever. So if he'd have come to us and this had happened, he would have been dragged into this whole mess. And he's not the most adept person to do military military things. He's a very bright boy, but it's not his, you know, it would have been, it would have been not, not good. So um, my primary thing was just to keep my wife calm. So I took her to Roslav and uh, she spent four days with her son, um, you know, doing stuff for him. They were seeing each other. I was taking a break. Uh, and uh, then from Roslav, we stayed one night in Germany. And then we went to stay with a friend of mine near Rotterdam in Holland for two nights. Uh, then the night, the day after that, we drove to uh, Belgium to Dunkirk, well, the border of Dunkirk, France, uh, spent a night there and then uh, took a ferry, a boat uh, across the, the English Channel the next the next afternoon. Wow. I mean, you know, besides the, the you know, personal harrowing story, I mean, isn't it ironic that uh, you ended up fleeing from the war or not fleeing, but, you know, escaping? I know you're going back. Um from Dunkirk. I mean, isn't yeah. that, uh, isn't that very ironic? Well, it's funny on the drive back as well, you know, we were going through all these places from world war two. Uh, I don't know if you know, operation market garden, Arnhem, uh, you know, and I was telling my wife that you know, these areas were flooded by the Germans on their retreat. 
uh, when the, you know, after Dunkirk and as to, you know, telling that I'm a bit of a World War II history buff. So, you know, and you think about these things and yeah, Dunkirk, poignant. Um, you know, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the film or know the history, but it, it was a major, major part of, uh, uh, of the Second World War, you know, D-Day. Yeah, it's just, it's, a, it's it, you know, from a historical standpoint to hear that you, you know, took a, a boat from the English Channel from Dunkirk uh, during, a, you know, a big land invasion in Europe is just, it's just so, uh, it's so poignant, you know, and, uh, but wow, that is an amazing journey. And, and so you just, what did you, did you leave your car? In Dunkirk and get on and get on a, a ferry. No, no, no. Uh, we got on the ferry. Uh, it's funny. We have the dog with us, and he's got a Ukrainian dog passport. In Europe, you need a dog passport with rabies shots and all the vaccinations. Apparently, we needed. It was no good, so we missed the first boat. Then we had to find a. We found a vet in Dunkirk who rewrote the dog's passport to a French dog passport. And then it, he was good to go. So the dog's no longer Ukrainian. He's a French national. Um, but, you know, just, <coughs> just, excuse me, just hurdles that we had to go through. Um, but, you know, you just, you go, you go into auto drive. I go into autopilot and I just know that there's a goal at the end and then I can have a beer and have to relax and take it easy. And I just had to do what I needed to do to make sure everything was fine without any attention to try and keep the spirits up it's a hard thing you know for for my wife to just leave up and leave we left my mother-in-law there too you know i rebuilt a house uh i've made a life there so i had to kind of switch all that off and then get here and yeah i did it well i'm i'm glad that you made it i mean that's just like an uh like i said a harrowing journey um Wow. And anyone who has dogs, you know, knows I have three dogs that they're just a member of the family like everyone else. And so it's it's interesting to see the videos of people, you know, with their dogs fleeing and, 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 you know, your dog needing a passport and things like that. It's very uh, it's very interesting to hear about. Um, We'll briefly talk about what happened when you went to the United Kingdom and then we'll talk about you going back and the, the actual military stuff. But so once you landed um in the united kingdom uh in britain what what happened what's the process like okay well the process is pretty weird because this is a whole new thing and i have to say that i was pretty embarrassed and pretty annoyed by the british government how they've handled everything from the get-go it's just been a joke uh the home office uh is a joke the um you know the woman who's uh pretty patel who is the home secretary is a joke um, you know, it's just unbelievable, just one mess after another. They weren't ready for this, and things could have been a lot easier. Ireland, for example, they're not requiring you to pre-do biometrics. When you arrive, they do it. Why didn't England do the same under the circumstances? You know, they offered so many things. They dangled the carrot, but they couldn't get it done. Or they could, it was just a, just a bureaucratical mess. You call one phone number, it tells you to call another one. You get through, then you get cut off. Um, not to be rude, but they outsource uh, the phone lines to call centers. And, you know, 70% of the people, I don't understand what they're saying because they're speaking uh, English with an Indian accent or something like this. It's no, no fault of theirs, but they're putting people in, 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 in a job that is serious, that, you know, we haven't got time to, to decode somebody's accent 
you know, and these poor people probably get so much crap from people like me that you know, just want to want to get something done. So the process was basically um, I had to notify the, the border force, the UK border force, 48 hours before, uh, giving them our boat time, uh, my wife's uh, passport number, all the information, and then we would be good to travel. Uh, we arrived at the port and they hadn't received that information, so they made a call and managed to trace it up. And that's how disorganized stuff is. They just, they just, you know, got their heads in a mess. So then we go to England. They didn't even put a stamp in her passport, which she was meant to have. So we went to pick up her biometric card because once you've done the process and the biometrics come through, they issue with a biometric residence card. Uh, I got an email. Please come and pick up the biometrics card. We went to pick it up in Baker Street, London, which is about 40 minutes from where we're staying. Uh, Baker Street, Sherlock Holmes area. Um, we went to the post office, produced the passport. Oh, we can't give you the uh, biometric card because it hasn't got a stamp in the passport. You know, it's just like one thing after another. The card was in grabbing this distance, and I was really thinking just snatch, snatching it and going, but not to jeopardize my wife's residency. Uh, we went away and I wrote a very well-worded long letter. And then on the Monday after that, um, they said, please uh, come collect it in the very apologetic blah, blah, blah. And she's got the biometric residency card. It allows her to work, uh, which is a great thing. It does have printed on it, no public funds. I don't know if some of you know that in England, people think it's a haven because you can arrive there and get benefits. Benefits meaning if you're not working, you can uh, get a sum of money every week, which covers you if you're not working. You can get your rent covered. You can get prescriptions, medicine, dentists, everything covered by the benefit system, the national health. Um, in this instance, they, for Ukrainians, I don't know if they're changing this, they might do, but on the card it's printed no public funds, which means that you cannot and are not entitled to benefits. Um, so that's that, that's it. But I mean, we've we've got the card. We're here. Uh, we can come and go uh, when we when we like. And uh, it's three years. It's a three years permanent resident card. Wow. Well, that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing. That's uh, you know, that's that's great that you were able to get out. I mean, a lot like you said, a lot of people were were not so lucky. And it's uh, you know, I'm glad that you. You made it out. Your wife made it out. Is your steps? Is your stepson? Is your wife's son going to be staying in Poland? Yeah. Well, he's studying in Poland. He's got another three months, and the, the idea is, you know, since she's here, she's entitled to apply for him to come as well. So we're going to see if we can get him to come over. He's going to be finishing university, and he's going to be looking at the job market. And he has had his eye on England. Uh, has been an idea. I could have done it for him, but it's a lot easier now. So we might as well profit from this situation. Uh, and if we can, then we'll get him over and he can, he can work. He can start working and uh, start learning about life. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, hopefully it works out for him uh, as well. Um, let's, let's kind of shift gears and talk about the military situation. So I know, that, I know that you were an advisor to the Ukrainian military in 2015. You are a... a, a have a vast amount of military experience in different countries. Um, you know, and you were one of the only people that I've talked to that said, you know, the Ukrainian military is a lot better than they were. And they're a lot tougher than people think, you know, I think uh, a lot of 
people, including myself, dismissed how well the Ukrainian military would do against a full Russian invasion. And so you were one of the only people who uh, were, were telling me that, no, this is they're, they're, they're a lot better than they were you know, in 2014 when Russia first invaded Crimea. So what do you think about how the how the um, the defense of Ukraine is going? OK, the defense of Ukraine right now is very good strategically. Of course, let's let's be let's be honest. Uh, I think we're getting a lot of we I say we because I think think like a Ukrainian. We're getting a lot of help, um, you know, with uh, satellite systems, with comms, with tactical uh, advice from NATO and America, for sure. Uh, that is that is for sure because I'm seeing some moves, which are textbook, uh, which you probably know as well. Um, you know, encirclements, pincer movements, uh, you know, uh, kill zones, all the rest of it. They're they're getting some good advice, and they're using it to the best of their advantage, um, for sure, for sure. It's a very organised. It's a it's a very well oiled machine right now. Um, and I think that's with you know help uh, indirectly from from uh, other sources. And so now it seems to me so like you stated earlier, uh, Marapool is just I mean just devastated. Um, it looks like the Russians have kind of taken Marapool and, o- and Odessa, and it looks like in Kiev, uh, in Kiev rather they 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 were stalled. And it seems to me in the last the last I've looked at the maps in the last two to three weeks, they really haven't made much progress towards Kiev. And I'm wondering what you think. I mean, do you think the Russians will eventually be able to encircle Kiev? I mean, what's going on there? Um, Their stalling has been our kind of, um, you know, our prize. Um, And it's kind of bolstered things up, you know, logistically and uh, tactically. They've they've just made messes you know um they i think they underestimated the systems we've got the bayraktar um drones which have been very effective um you know there's a lot of uh, private people that have been doing drone surveillance um i think you know they they really under you know he thought it was going to be a three-day thing you know (laughs) we're coming up to a month now nearly so I don't know. Um, you know, I, we did speak before about the thermobaric weapons. I think those have been used in various instances, which is very, very out, out of order. It's very bad, but, you know, always war. Um, people are talking about chemical weapons now, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. The, the thing with Kiev now, I think, you know, everyone's well dug in. It's everyone knows what they're doing. Um, and it's on, you know, the fight's on. They've made messes, and a lot of there's been a lot of interception of, uh, you know, phone networks and uh, discontent within the ranks of the Russian military, you know, um, generals or commanders being run over by angry people with tanks or um, Chechens being killed, you know, because they underestimated the Ukrainian forces. So I think the Russians are getting a good run for their money. Um, the longer it goes, the more discontent and the more pressure it will go to Russia. And I think these, you know, a lot of these people are conscripts or young soldiers that didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, they t- they were told that they'd be greeted in the streets and, you know, whatever. It hasn't happened. Um, I think morale is very low on the Russian side. That's for sure. 
And, you know, I've seen these, uh, well, these videos where that, you know, young Russian conscripts are, um, being kidnapped or not, you know, being captured in battles. And then, you know, they're, they're speaking to their mothers, you know, these kids, I mean, I call them kids cause they're kids. They look about 18, 19 years old. I heard, I heard some of them as young as, uh, 15 were being conscripted. Um, and they're talking on, you know, FaceTime or Telegram chat uh, to their moms and, and their mothers are saying, what are you doing? And they're saying, we were in Ukraine and we have no idea. We just want to come home. And so it's very sad to see that. And I, I was surprised because I thought Russia would be sending in their, you know, their top troops. Their, their, I know they sent some Spetsnaz and even the Spetsnaz that were repelled from the Hostomel airport. Um but I'm like, and then I see that the Chechens are going in, the Syrians, and and it's very, very bizarre uh, how Russia is uh, conducting this. And like you said, the morale. I mean, I saw your Facebook post where a uh, a young Russian soldier driving a tank basically got tired of his commander and decided to run him over because they were losing so many people. So I mean, that is never a good sign for an army. You know that, you know. So it's a ragtag army. I mean, you know, well done whoever did that. You know, quite a good move, or maybe your foot foot slipped. But um, yeah, they're they're desperate. I mean, you know, to ring up Syria and ask Assad to send some of his boys over. Uh, the Chechens are just madmen anyway, and they're bloodthirsty. But even in Chechnya, they've got an opposition. But the the the, the Chechen guy, I can't remember his name. You know, I mean, he's he's ruling with with tyranny and fear in that area. And he's got the backing of Putin. Um, you see that even in Belarus now, people are sabotaging railway lines and they don't want it. You know, A lot of people don't want it. And the longer it goes, the more people wake up. They're disinformed in Russia, totally disinformed. If you know, I was, I was a journalist reporting on this and I was pro-Ukraine, I could be locked up for 15 years. I, I'd be, disappear. Um, so yeah, clutching at straws, the sanctions as well. It's up, upsetting a lot of these guys. These guys only care about money. You know, they don't care about anything else. The Ukraine's in exile there that have stolen money from Ukraine. The oligarchs, they're losing their yachts. They're losing the, their offshores. They're, you know, feeling the pinch. And they care only about money. And Putin's uh, let them make money. And now he wants something back. But these people are going to like it. And hopefully something in his camp or you know, Double tap him and good night. That would be a good way to go, but you know, we have to see. Um, Russian military are running out of steam, and they're seeing that they've got a formidable force fighting against them. It's not a walk in the park as they thought it would be. Right, and 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 my fear is just now that you know there's no real um, um, way for Putin to kind of back out of this at this point, right? Um, I think he's kind of. He's kind of stuck into where. So my my fear is that, you know, although it's very um, controversial to say this, but my my fear for the average you know Ukrainian citizen is just the longer this goes on, the more and more desperate that Russia will get, and the potential for you know more dangerous situations for the the Ukrainian citizens. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the longer the longer the longer this goes on, uh, the quicker it's going to get. And of course, desperate people do desperate things. We know that. And he's not the kind of guy that's going to back down. He's got to be in his bonnet about Ukraine, about him, uh, you know, uh, uh, about the EU, about the fall of the Iron Curtain. Uh, you know, he doesn't forget. 
and he doesn't want to forget and he doesn't want to let go. He's like a pit bull that just won't let go. And that's a dangerous thing. So even a military coup needs to happen. Oh, I don't know. But yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation there because he will not let go. He will not back down. Oh yeah, this is. It's. Uh, I have no idea how this is. This is going to play out. I just know it's going to be. Uh, to be to be devastating. Um, now let's talk about your personal situation. You're gonna go. Are you heading back into Ukraine? Yeah, I'm heading back. Yeah, um, I need uh, to go back and secure some things, and also I've made a pledge to uh, help train. Um, tra- train some people in Lviv. I won't be in an active combat role. Uh, I may uh, take people to various units and things like this, but um, I'm kind of needed because I speak French, Italian and English. And there's a lot of people coming to join the foreign legions. Uh, so they need uh, somebody who speaks a language, knows the area, knows the people and well connected uh, with uh, Lviv uh, defence and other uh, military uh, things there so I'll be doing that um, on a 10 day base 10 day on 10 day off basis I can go in and out of Ukraine as I please Uh, I'm not signing any contracts I'm not making any uh, official uh, so it's kind of an advisory capacity Um, so I'll be I'll be back and forth okay and so you're going to be helping the um, for people who don't know um, President Zelensky opened up a uh, military unit of foreigners, basically anyone not Ukrainian that wants to come and fight uh, for the Ukrainian against the Russians. Um, you know, they can come in and, and, and join this foreign legion, you can call it, and fight. And uh, Thomas, you said you're going to be working with them. Yeah, as I said, in an advisory capacity, I have to be careful what I say, let's say. But. Um, yeah, basically, also, it's to weed out uh, who's coming in. You know, uh, these kind of things attract uh, sometimes the wrong people. And, uh, you know, have to be careful that we have people that are not unhinged or, uh, you know, are capable. Uh, somebody who lies about military uh, experience or has no ex- military experience can be a liability to himself, uh, which is one thing, but to the people he's with, his brothers in arms. So I've got to kind of weed out those kind of people and uh, we have to do some serious checks. And, you know, that's important because I, I, I've been looking on some message boards on Reddit and things like that. And I've seen um, people, you know, 19, 20 year olds, everyone knows, you know, how a 19 and 20 year old male thinks. You know, that's that's when I enlisted in the army. That's when most people and these guys are saying, I have no experience. Uh, I'm not really in good shape, but I'm going to go to Ukraine and help fight the Russians. And I'm thinking to myself, you're going to get your entire unit killed. You have no idea what you're getting into. You need to be really careful, and so I think it's it's great that you're going to be vetting out. I mean, and of course, any I mean, there's people who walk around, you know, with stolen. We call it stolen valor here in the U.S. Basically, yeah, yeah, people pretending that they're these combat veterans and they are they're special forces and all these things. And it is very likely for someone like that to say, "I'm going to go to Ukraine and fight and lie uh, essentially on their resume." So you need to weed them out. Well, no. Well, well, we'll see. I mean, in 2014, 2015, you could see who was and who wasn't. There were some people that came off, uh, came down, uh, you know, led off a couple of mags, didn't like it. They couldn't handle the artillery, you know, for 10 hours straight. 
and you could see immediately. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a macho thing, but, you know, if you can't do it, you shouldn't be there. Uh, it's not a game. It's not a joke. It's not, um, it's not uh, some PlayStation game like some people think. You know, um, there are people with money that come over. They've got, you know, the cool helmets and the cry precision and the plates and all that. And then they end up leaving it because, you know, they just think they look cool. Uh, and they think it's it's easy you know, being under fire, being, um, you know, with grad rockets and missiles and booby traps. And all that's no, it's no joke, you know. And um, but it's better to weed them out before rather than during. Um, and, you know, not put others at risk because you get some some fool who uh, had some silly idea whilst playing playing some video game that he could do the same, you know. I've got no time for it, and these people should stay away. And 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 I agree, and I will reiterate that to whatever audience I have that if you have not been in a military role, have you if you're not a veteran with combat experience, um, you you really should not. This is not the place for you to go and get uh, fame and glory. You need to be really careful um, about what you're doing because this is the real deal fighting a peer adversary uh, with thermobaric rockets, grad rockets, uh, you know, tactics that uh, are, are, are just uh, uh, horrific and nothing, nothing like the U.S. Army probably has ever faced, you know, since Vietnam era. So um, I just, yeah, that is something that I've always wanted to say and let people know. And I see these people on message boards and it, it worries me because I'm like, wow, people, you know, a college kid with the sense of adventure is going to end up going to Ukraine and being in a, in, in a foxhole somewhere, just getting artillery shelled and have no idea what he was getting into. Yeah. Not the best idea. You know, it's not like the 1800s where you join the foreign legion to forget and have some romantic walk in the desert. You know, I mean, this is serious stuff. Also, they don't play games. Geneva convention does not exist when it comes to Russia. Uh, they'll take you hostage. You'll be used as a pawn uh, in the game. Uh, it can be very messy. Uh, and, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, just stay away. There are plenty of ways that people can help. They don't have to help militarily. Uh, they can raise money. Uh, they can you know, do all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, a good hero is, a, you know, a, a dead hero is a useless hero, uh, as my grandfather used to say. He was a World War II uh, submarine. Uh, official uh, officer in a submarine, you know. So, you know, it, it's just not. It's just not something that should be taken lightly. You know, stay away. And if I find you, you'll be out anyway. And and um, before we get to you know ways that people can help and donate and things like that, just for my own curiosity, how are you going to? I mean, without getting into detail, how are you going to weed people? I mean, I'm sure any you know, veteran can recognize this person has no idea what they're doing, but are they going to get like a one to two week uh, tryout or training course? I mean, how, how are you going to vet with them? Um, basically, you know, there's me and there's other ex, uh, ex military people. I know I've got some people out there already. Um, and basically there's a, in Lviv area, we have a kind of base, a camp area, a tented area. I can't tell you where that is, but um, where they'll stay, uh, and there'll be like an induction week, I guess. Um, and anyone from England, uh, you know, or from Italy or from France, uh, will work it out. You know, we'll work it out. Also, you know, if you're bona fide, 
that you'll have papers from your discharge. Uh, they'd be nice to bring them. Uh, we can find that out. Uh, to see how we can, we can, we can, you know, it's amazing what we can get, we can find out, uh, just by talking to people and just by observing them, you know, uh, it, it would be, I'll be surprised, you know, if anybody kind of is trying to BS, you know, um, I have a BS detector built in, so we can see, but of course, there's going to be people that are going to fall through the cracks for sure, um, but, you know, the best thing we can try and do is avert that and try and keep that kind of thing at bay because you know, the uh, implications could be deadly from somebody who, who has no experience for sure right and and not just for themselves but for the for the people that they're with and so that's you know that's that's huge um so now I know that you do some, uh, you sent me a message on Facebook. You're doing, uh, uh, you have some donation sites and you have some items and gear that, that uh, you need or you want to bring with you. How can, I mean, we had over a thousand listeners to your last podcast. So this is going to reach, you know, a good amount of people and I'll post it on Twitter. Um, how, how, how can people donate to you? How can they help your cause? Right. Well, you know, some people are a bit, wary of donating money which i can totally understand i can totally get that but if uh, you post the links um that i've sent you you can see that i'm bona fide and i'm not um some some uh yeah, profiteer and uh, basically i did a list of uh, stuff which i need which is basically i gave that i gave the same gear away i don't mind if it's second hand and if i do go if i do get money i'll probably buy it second hand anyway uh, apart from very, you know, from certain things, I won't buy secondhand, like a helmet or plates. A plate carrier, I would buy secondhand. I've got my problem. Uh, I'm not up for a fashion show. I just want to be protected, and I need the right kit to do the right job. I did write a list. I mean, it, you know, it just goes from uh, plate carrier um, to uh, front and back uh, ballistic plates, level four side plates for side protection, a helmet. Um, ear defenders, elbows and knee pads, tactical glasses and goggles, gloves, um, you know, and then basically the current um, current uh, US uh, multicam trousers, jacket and shirts, you know, uh, boots, of course, um, uh, you know, dump pouches, combat knife, uh, mag pulls, IFAC kit, which is very important. I do like to have a very good IFAC kit with the tourniquet, uh, with the uh, chest seals, burns, sea locks, uh, things like that. So, you know, anyone who wants to got any MREs, I do love an MRE, like pouring the water into those and heating them up at the side of the road. Great fun. Uh, you know, sleeping bag, backpack could be a full day or a two day used, not bothered. Uh, molly attachments and uh, things like that for the plate carrier vest, um, tourniquets. Yeah, anyone might think of other things, but I mean, it's like a 12 item list that I gave you. And if anyone wants to bung anything else for that, um, I can get stuff for other people as well. You know, uh, I'm thinking for myself because if I'm not effective and I'm not, I can't do a good job. If I'm going to certain areas, I need to keep my wits about me. I mean, we've seen in Ukraine that people have been wearing airsoft helmets on the battlefield. I don't. I didn't believe that when I saw that in 2015. You know, um, this is no joke, and I need good protection. 
I'm not asking for gold plated or anything amazing, but just the basics so that I can do my job effectively um, and come home. Now, Thomas, so how, how logistically would it would one be able to get you gear? So say, for example, one of my listeners wanted to buy you, I don't know, an IFAC kit and get it to you. How, how would they, I mean, you can order those things on Amazon, right? There's certain other tactical websites. Yeah, you can order them on Amazon or, I mean, what I'm doing is because since, um, since Ukraine has been in the war, I was getting stuff, you know, I could get a, a shipment at a time at a time that was under $150, $200. If it was a bit over, I didn't mind paying the uh, customs fees. So what I'd say is if anyone wanted to send it to me, uh, then they could. The best place would probably be to send it. I think that there's a, a mail outlet called Meast Express, and they started shipping to Ukraine again. That would be one option, if not to Europe. Uh, England, forget about it because the customs here, they just jump on anything. You've got a T-shirt for $5, they'll make you pay tax on it. Um, or if uh, donations come, then I'll buy it online in Europe. I'll get it to delivered wherever I am in Europe because if I'm in the EU, then we don't have to pay tax. I'm very happy to show receipts, uh, anything like that. You know, I'm totally transparent on expenditure. Um, if there's anything left in the coffers, then I'll do a multi-buy of, you know, basic uh, um, gloves, you know, a, a bag of gloves, a bag of socks and stuff like this. But the stuff I want, I can get it all in all in Europe. If somebody does want to send it, I've got no problem with that. We'll have to work that one out. Where would be the best place to send it? Um, I'm leaving England on the 12th. I'll be in Poland for a day, and around the 13th, 14th, I'll be in country in Ukraine. So it gives us a couple of weeks. Um, I did give you links for two uh, donation sites that I've set up. Um, and if anyone wants to, so I can divide it from uh, the other donations which are going for pregnant people, for pampers, for diapers, stuff like this, you could put uh, as a reference Ukraine Tactical Kit Fund in brackets, friends of Russell, Russell Warren or Russell Warren podcasts. So at least I can divide it from the money, uh, which is going to other things. Um, one of them is um, <clears throat> GoFundMe, and the other one is Go Get Funding. Um, also, I've got my um, Wise bank account detail, which I have given you, which you can get from Warren, uh, and you can send in US dollars. Failing that, there's a PayPal address as well. Um, you know, if you know if any of you are so kind to donate, then you know please leave your name and you know friends of Russell Warren. Um, and um, if you have a Facebook or uh, you want to be in contact, you know I'll take pictures for you. I'll take pictures of what we get. If you have a company, I'm quite happy to uh, give you a little boost and a thank you. Um, you know for your help. Uh, you know, in normal times, I wouldn't wouldn't ask. I'd put my own hands in my pocket. Since I left Ukraine, my funds have been frozen because the banks closed there. Um, I've been living off TV interviews. I've been doing a lot of TV interviews uh, for Sky TV, BBC, GBTV. And, you know, I was thinking they were free at first. And then I realized that, you know, coming to England is not cheap. Um, so I've been making them pay for the interviews. That's kind of dried up. I'm yesterday's news. I'm not interesting anymore. Um, you know, because I'm not in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in the situation. So, you know, any help would be, you know, very, very helpful. And Thomas, I think the, uh, 
the best way logistically and the most efficient way is going to be one of those donation sites. And that way you can go and buy the gear that you need. Um, And so, yeah, I I will tweet it out that I will tweet out the link and I will just have them put, you know, uh, Ukrainian tactical as uh, so, you know, if if they mention your name, you know, friends of Russell Warren uh, and their name uh, on the Facebook, I will thank you. Uh, I, you know, I can send them the receipt of what they purchased, and if I buy extra stuff that goes to, you know, I'll take the pictures of the guys, and we'll, you know, do a group photo with a big thank you, uh, you know, from the Ukrainian guys. You know, um, anything, anything is great. You know, well, uh, well, they don't need to put my name on there. You know that we want to keep OPSEC here, and so okay, right? You can just write Ukrainian tactical, and that that'll be you'll understand Ukraine what that. Tech- yeah, Ukraine Tactical Kit Fund. That would be great, of course. Yeah, um, you know, and you know, I, I, I'm you know, I'm eternally grateful for that. It's not just for me because <clears throat> I'm sure uh, if it does, you know, uh, does go extra, that really does help. You know, it really does. Of course, and and Thomas, again, you know, thank you so much for for taking your time out to do this. Thank you uh, for sharing your story. I'm so glad you. You and your family made it out, and I, I wish you the best of luck uh, on your new journey back to Ukraine. And uh, you know, just stay safe, uh, keep mm-hmm. your head down, and and uh, let me know how it goes. And if you, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to tweet this out. Thank uh, you. My, my Twitter is at retirement right. If anyone's looking for it, um, you know, I'm gonna tweet this out. I, I, I will uh, tell you know, give the instructions for what to do, and tell my followers what you're gonna do with it. And so I'm sure some of them uh, will choose to, to donate. I will be donating myself so, so, you can, so you can get some of that, some of that gear. And uh, again, I'm happy that you and your family made it out. And I hope this, uh, this situation resolves uh, uh, very soon. Well, one thing I can say from this whole experience with you, Russell, is, you know, I've made a friend uh, we've never met. Uh, when we first got in contact, I was a bit uh, kind of suspicious, but um, you know, you're, you're, great guy uh you have valid conversation and topics and it's uh, you know great pleasure to be part of your podcast and um you know with your followers and your listeners um really good and it's kind of helped as well you know it keeps my mind off things you talk my kind of language with both military guys so it's just nice to take a break and uh, talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about and can relate thank you well, thank you, Thomas. It's been it's been great. And when this when this is all over, and I I take my first trip to the United Kingdom, we will uh, sit down at a pub and, and and have a beer. Okay, perfect. That's a deal. Okay, thank you, guys. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, maybe speak to you all soon. Thanks again. All right, thanks, Thomas. You have a great day. Russell, Russell, sorry. Okay. All right. Have a good evening. And all my listeners, I hope you have a great weekend, and I will be tweeting out the the, the link. So thank you all, and uh, have a great weekend. I will see you uh, next week. Bye-bye.